Good afternoon, Missio Mesa. Uh, for those of you that do not know me, my name is Nick, and I am excited to get to share with you guys this evening. Um, I want to start with a, a story. So the year was 2001. I was at the great, beautiful age of 13 years old, uh, mouth full of braces, coming into my awkward own self. And I remember one day in particular that my parents came home with uh, a big screen TV. And if you remember uh, back in the early 2000s, big screen TVs looked a lot different than they do now. They were as uh, wide as they were deep, right? Like buying one of these required strategic planning on where that was going to go in your room, which wall it would take up. And so my parents spent the day getting the TV set up and uh, eventually the next morning came and I woke up and this amazing thing happened. No one was home. In a family of five, this was a really rare occurrence. My parents had gone off to get groceries. My older brothers were already off at work. And so here I found myself alone with this new TV. Uh, the stars had lined up for me that morning. And so I wasted no time. I ran to the kitchen. I grabbed one of my mom's mixing bowls and poured half a box of Cinnamon Toast Crunch in it because if you use a mixing bowl, you don't have to get up twice. You're welcome to use that tip if you want. So once I had my large bowl of cereal and half a gallon of milk, I sat on the couch and was ready to enjoy the new TV. After flipping through the channels for a while, I eventually landed on ESPN. And that day, there happened to be uh, an event televised that I'd never seen before. It was called the Westminster Dog Show. And at that time in my life, I was really into dogs. I was trying to convince my, my parents to, to buy a dog, and they weren't having it. So I was like, this be like good research for the day. And as I watched uh, the show, I learned quickly how the competition works. And so for those of you who don't know, there's seven different groups of dogs. You have herding dogs, you have sporting dogs, you have working dogs, terrier, toy, non-sporting, and hound. So the competition began, and it begins by dogs competing in their respective groups, and eventually one winner from each of those seven categories advances to the final. And so the seven finalists that day were an Australian Shepherd, a Golden Retriever, a Siberian Husky, a Boston Terrier, a Basset Hound, a Dalmatian, and a Bichon Frise. And after two hours of watching this dog show, uh, it was time for the final round. But before the final round, there was an extended break uh, for the dogs, uh, but also the spectators, which was great because it gave me a chance to pop in some pizza rolls into the oven, which would have been ready just in time for the final round. Anyway, so the final round begins, and the judge was this older woman. Uh, that day, she was dressed in this black suit, this white lace that came out of her suit, these black penny loafers, white hair. Uh, she looked almost like a Supreme Court judge. And the final round began. Each dog took its turn running the oval, and she was watching them. Uh, they would come up to this podium and she would feel their face and pet them and, and their spine. She would look into their souls. And after each dog had its turn in front of the judge, uh, she walked to the, this table in the middle of the oval and she filled out the paper, she closed it, she signed it, and then she took one more lap just to keep the dogs and owners in suspense. And then she pointed to the winner. That day, uh, this was the winner of the 2001 Westminster Dog Show. Uh, the dog's name is Special Times Just Right. 
also goes by JR for short. I spent three hours that day watching this dog show. Um, I consumed a stupid amount of calories and time watching these dogs run in an oval, and I felt extremely disappointed at the outcome. Surely the winner would have been uh, the gorgeous Australian Shepherd or the Husky. The dogs that this Bichon Frise was competing against seemed so superior to this little guy. But you see, the judge saw something in this Bichon Frise that me as a spectator couldn't. I share this story because the text we're going to look at today has an unlikely outcome. Much like the winner of the 2001 Westminster Classic felt like a shock, we'll see God anoint a new king over Israel that surely would have been shocking to the people who witnessed it. And so Emily read 1 Samuel 16. If you want to flip in your Bibles, we'll be there. Uh, verses 1 through 13. But uh, just to sort of recap where we've been, um, our story today picks up in a time uh, when Israel is transitioning from uh, being ruled by judges to being ruled by kings. See, Israel, at this time, they looked around at the other nations and they saw that they had kings. And so they came to this man named Samuel, their priest, and they asked him, Samuel, look, those nations with kings, like, that looks pretty dope. We want a king. Can you do that for us? And so Samuel goes to God, and he's like, God, Israel wants a king. What should I do? And eventually God tells Samuel to let Israel have a king. And so Israel chooses Saul to become their first king. See, Saul was a man who looked like a king. He looked like someone that would protect Israel and keep them safe. But eventually things go sideways, and Saul does not lead Israel back to God. And so uh, chapter 16 of 1 Samuel opens up with Samuel mourning. He was mourning over the choice of Saul being king. And God comes to him and says, Samuel, how long are you going to mourn? I need you to get up and go to Bethlehem and you're going to anoint a new king. And Samuel responds in fear, right? Uh, which was understandable because to anoint a new king while Saul was already on the throne would have ensured death for Samuel. He was committing an act of treason by going and electing an, anointing a new king. But God reassures him. He says, look, take a heifer with you. I'll be, uh, you're going to be good. So Samuel goes uh, to Jesse's house in Bethlehem to anoint a new king. And he arrives and invites Jesse and his sons to his sacrifice. And his sons are ready to present themselves to Samuel to show that they should be king. So the oldest son comes before Samuel, Eliab. And Samuel thinks, surely, like, that's the dude. That is a king right there. But God corrects him, right? He says, Samuel, I'm looking at their hearts, man. Like, I'm not looking at their appearance. And then the next oldest in this family comes uh, in front of Samuel, Abinadab. And God tells Samuel, he's not the one. Then the next oldest, Shema, comes in front of Samuel. And again, God says, that's not the one either. Uh, the next three brothers don't even get a name mentioned, but they are also passed on. At this point, Samuel looks around and is like, Jesse, like, you got any more kids? Like, these ones aren't working. And Jesse's like, oh yeah, I got another one. He's out in the field with the sheep. And Samuel's like, send for him at once. And so the whole story is leading to this moment where in walks a boy, David. He comes in. 
and God tells Samuel to arise and anoint him king. And then the story ends with Samuel going back home and David awkwardly standing in the tension of a family whose dynamics have just shifted dramatically. And the story ends there. See, David is anointed king over Israel in this living room, yet there's no crowd, there's no fanfare, there's no big announcement. I think that this story of this shepherd boy, David, becoming king over Israel shows us three things. I think the first one is that our hearts matter more to God than our appearance. I'll I'll just say all three and then we'll go back to the first one. So the heart matters more to God than appearance. The second one is that God works in surprising and creative ways. And then that God speaks in the quiet but also the noise. So we'll look at that first one. Our heart matters more to God than our appearance. I'm going to read verses 6 and 7 one more time. It says, When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, the oldest son, and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We see how God corrects Samuel for looking at Eliab's appearance and reminds him by by saying, look, I'm looking at people's hearts. God declares that the Lord sees differently than us humans who settle for outward appearance, whereas God sees the heart, the inner person, not the outward appearance. Heart has to do uh, with the will or character of a person. And so David is a man after God's own heart. Understanding that heart really means character here helps us resolve uh, the last section of the passage where the author makes sure to note that David was glowing in health and had a fine appearance and handsome features to add. But again, this isn't about the outward appearance. This is about the character of David that made him attractive. I think it's fair to say that uh, appearance matters in our culture, that we as a people uh, care about our appearance. A recent study found that the average American spends over one hour a day working out and over $100,000 over the course of their lifetime on gym memberships, health supplements, and workout clothing. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with taking care of ourselves and staying healthy. But I wonder what would happen if we dedicated as much time to our hearts as we did our physical health. What if we engaged in the hard work of heart work? What if we asked the Spirit to reveal to us the areas of our heart that needed healing, that needed refinement, that need work? See, in a culture that says our appearance matters, the brand you wear matters, God is saying, I'm looking at your heart, your character, that's what I care about. A second thing I think we see in this text is that God works in surprising and creative ways. At the end of this story in 1 Samuel 16, we see God choose David, a boy shepherd. And what I love about David is that he's such an unlikely choice. Just like the Bichon Frisee, special times just right, it left you scratching your head at the result. He's a shepherd, the eighth son, which is significant because in this culture, birth order was everything. The fact that David was the youngest meant he was worth the least in the eyes of his culture and his family. His family had no pedigree from Bethlehem. 
Much like I questioned the judge at the Westminster Dog Show, people would have looked on and thought, what is God doing? Why him? What qualifications does he have to be king? Surely he can't protect us. He's a boy. But God doesn't always select the obvious choice. He chooses the boy who wasn't even invited to the sacrifice, who was out tending the sheeps. God chooses an unlikely prospect and finds in him the hope of Israel's future. See, God sees possibilities even when others do not. I think a third thing that this text shows us is that God speaks in the quiet but also the noise. Throughout the entire 13 verses, we see God and Samuel having a conversation as Samuel just goes throughout his day. Right? If you look back at the beginning, it starts with God coming to Samuel and saying, how long are you going to mourn? I need you to get up and go anoint a new king. And Samuel's like, that's a death mission, God. Then God's like, okay, take a heifer with you and I'll show you what to do. So Samuel goes, and when he gets there, he's like, surely this oldest son is the one. And God's like, no, dude, I'm looking at their hearts. He's like, cool, cool, hearts, got it, got it. Then God's like, nope, not this one, next one, right? And it continues. And then David comes in, and eventually Samuel hears God say to get up and anoint him. The entire passage is this conversation between God and Samuel. It's like Samuel had an earpiece in, and God was speaking to him throughout his day. I love that in this story, we we see God speak in the quiet and also the noise, right? At the beginning of the story, Samuel is home. He's mourning over Saul being king and God speaks to him. But he also speaks to Samuel in the hustle and bustle of that day. In the house of Jesse that would have been booming with people, Samuel was still hearing God's voice. I think that we often think God only speaks in the quiet, In the morning, over a cup of coffee, when the kids are still in their rooms, not out making noise. But we see here that God speaks in the noise as well. In the business of Samuel's day and work, God was speaking to him. What if we listened not only for God in the quiet moments, but as our children made loud noises and passed decibels that they shouldn't, or at work, When the phone won't stop ringing, what if we listened for God in those moments as well? Uh, So while this text shows us these three things, I want to give you a chance to turn and talk in in small groups. Uh, You can already see the question there. Which one of these three is sticking out to you and why? I'll give you a few minutes to turn and talk, uh, and then we'll come back and we'll keep going here. So while those three things are found in this text and are important and are true, This text is much bigger than just those three things, which begs the question, right, why does this story matter? You see, this text is ultimately pointing to something bigger than a shepherd boy becoming king. This text is pointing to Jesus. You see, David was a foretaste of the true king to come. David would give the people of Israel a taste of what living under the forever king Jesus would be like. David was setting the stage for Jesus. I want to read from Isaiah chapter 9 from the message for you. For a child has been born for us, the gift of a son for us. He'll take over the running of the world. His names will be Amazing Counselor, Strong God, Eternal Father, Father, Prince of Wholeness. His ruling authority will grow and there'll be no limits to the wholeness he brings. He'll rule from the historic David throne 
over the promised kingdom. He'll put that kingdom on a firm footing and keep it going. With fair dealing and right living, beginning now and lasting always, the zeal of God of the angel armies will do all this. See, these verses in Isaiah show us that, God, uh, that Jesus would come after David, that David would play an important role in leading Israel. But you see, David was not the Messiah. David was unlike Saul, which is important because before David, Israel's experience of what a king was was much different than what they would experience under David. Under David's kingship, they would experience a king who would humble himself, who would have radical trust in God, who would not have any outward features marking him as a king, who wouldn't shove his way into power. He was unlike Saul for Israel. A few years ago, uh, my wife and I had the opportunity to travel to Italy, that thing called travel, right, before COVID. Um, And out of all the things I remember about that trip, uh, one of the strongest memories I have is the food in Italy. There was a meal in particular that I remember really well. We were sitting in this piazza in Rome. Uh, There was a farmer's market kind of going on in the middle, and we were uh, at a restaurant off to the side. And we ordered an appetizer and a main course. And our appetizer was uh, bruschetta. And so it was toast. If you're hungry right now, this is probably going to be painful, so I'm sorry in advance. Toasted sourdough uh, with diced up tomatoes, olive oil, garlic, and a little balsamic vinegar on top. It was delightful, to say the least. And then the main course came, and it was lasagna, right? Layers of noodles with ragu and ricotta cheese, uh, Parmesan cheese grated on top to finish it off. So I remember this meal uh, in particular because the appetizer and the main course worked together so beautifully. The bruschetta was delicious, but it wasn't filling. It made me excited for what was to come in the lasagna, the main course. And when the main course came... I was overwhelmed by like, how beautiful it those two things worked together, right? Both dishes had some similar ingredients, but were also extremely different. Much like the appetizer, David was giving Israel a taste of what was to come in Jesus, the main act of the meal. A good appetizer will uh, excite you for what's to come. It will give you a taste of what is to come, but it won't completely fill you up. That's the main course's job, to fill us. See, David is extremely important in this story. In fact, it's hard to find another character in the Bible as important as David besides Jesus. He's instrumental in the story of God moving in his people. But this story is about a king coming who would do what David could not, finally make things right. So how does this story equip us as the church to faithfully take up our role in the story? There was a morning a couple months ago where I went to Pear, a local coffee shop just across the street. It was crisp out, and I ordered a vanilla latte, and I sat down that morning um, by myself enjoying my delicious vanilla latte. It was heavenly. Um, And as I enjoyed it, I was reminded of the goodness of God's glory, like literally tasting it on my lips. And about halfway through my cup... I got a notification, and that notification was that another black body was on the ground after a traffic stop. 
Have you ever had a day where you've experienced a beautiful gift, but were also reminded of the brokenness of this world? See, that morning I wrestled with knowing in my head that Jesus is king, but not really feeling like Jesus is king. And as we are a people living between the resurrected King Jesus and the restoration that is coming, we feel that tension that exists. Right? In an hour or a day, we can feel heartache, but we can also feel joy. Right? We can feel pain, but also healing. We can feel content, but also the need for more stuff. I want to read from Revelation uh, 21 for you. If you're following along in your Bible, it's the first seven verses. Revelation 21 says this, Then I saw a new heaven, and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. See, in Revelation, we see God's kingdom coming. Eugene Peterson describes it as God's moving into the neighborhood. He will restore all things. He will reign as our forever king. See, where there is death right now, there will be no more death. Where there is now sickness, there will be no more sickness. Where there's thirst, there won't be any more thirst. Where there's relational pain, there won't be any more relational pain. Where there's injustice, there will, not, there will be justice. See, we have a forever king who will make things right. And while we look forward to that day and hope for that day of restoration, we cannot forget the role we play now. The important work that God wants to do in us and through us See, I think that God is looking for people to partner with. We saw that in our story today. God partnered with Samuel to anoint a new king. God partnered with David to lead the people of Israel. God is looking for people that want to bring about a foretaste of the kingdom that is coming. And if we know that God is moving into the neighborhood, let's be people that prepare it for him. Where there's hurt, let's work towards healing. Where we see hunger, let's feed. Where there's sin, let's repent. I invite you one last time uh, to 1 Samuel. The very last verse says this. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, David, in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. See, the great work that David would go on to do was done with the help 
of the Spirit of God. The same Spirit that was on David was the same Spirit that was on Jesus, which is the same Spirit that God gives you and I. That's good news, Monsieur Mesa. See, God is looking for people to partner with, for people who are willing to humble themselves to his spirit and allow him to work in and through them. God is looking to give people a taste of the kingdom that is coming in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your relationships. And as we move towards communion, you're welcome uh, this evening to take communion on your own. As we participate in this meal, uh, may we remember that the, the bread and the juice represents the body and blood of Jesus, that this meal nourishes those who take it. This meal points us back to his death and resurrection, but also points us forward to him coming again as a forever king. I invite you over the next few minutes to ask God how he wants to partner with you. May he show you the, the faces of coworkers, of neighbors, of friends that need to experience the kingdom that is coming. And as you go to the table, may you remember that Jesus is king. And as we live in anticipation of our forever king ruling and restoring all things, that there is work to do right now that God wants to partner with you in the spaces that you occupy and that the Holy Spirit will equip you for the work that he has for you. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your son Jesus who died and rose again. We thank you that you are a king over all. We ask that you show us how you want to work through us, Lord. Help us to rely on your spirit and not our own effort. And help us to be obedient to the things that you're calling us to do. Monsieur Mesa, welcome to the table. <laughs>